Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Let us pray. O rock and redeemer, we ask for your grace, your favor this morning to understand why your word is so good and precious to us, so valuable. Teach us again why we have more reasons to love you, the God who has revealed himself to us. We might worship you and offer up our lives to you in praise for who you are and what you've done. It's in Christ's name I pray. C.S. Lewis once wrote this about Psalm 19. I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And I can say, after studying this psalm closely, Lewis's comment seems to be on target. And we want to see today a bit of why he was right. Psalm 19 combines the most beautiful poetry with some of the most profound theological insights in Scripture, as it was sung in corporate and private worship to God. Given the first six verses, many theologians in the history of the church have followed Jewish tradition in categorizing Psalm 19 as a creation psalm, or perhaps more accurately called a psalm of praise to the Creator, and there are many of those in the Psalter. But when we come to verses 7 and following, there is a sudden, seemingly drastic shift of focus or emphasis to God's law or Torah. Our psalm seems to have turned into what theologians refer to as a Torah psalm. Psalm 1, second half of this psalm. And as Cale read from Psalm 119, probably the most well-known Torah psalm, some of which believe that these Torah psalms are a subset of the wisdom psalms. Now, so what do we have here? It's, it's, do we have two psalms in one? Well, whoever put these together, whether it's written by one author or two authors and then assembled together, uh, there are possibilities here. Nevertheless, with God's providential care of His Word, we have it here together, and there are reasons for this. What we have in, in Psalm 19, it starts out, as theologians have told us over the years, with God's general revelation in His creation. God is revealing Himself. His creation reveals aspects of uh, the, 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 the nature of God, the character of God. This section appears to be an old Jewish creation hymn, a song which praises God for His glory revealed in the universe that He created. 
And that's, of course, again, the first six verses. Then we come to verse 7, and we have here then God's special revelation, as the theologians tell us, uh, His more direct interaction, the record of His interaction with humans in world history, and then the revealing of His mind and His, of, and his will, and, and so His law, His word, His special revelation. And this section is a meditation on the Torah, on God's revealed instruction and law in which the will of Yahweh is revealed to His covenant people, and then by extension through them to the world. And so revealed to His covenant people through His servant Moses at first at, at Sinai. So when we speak of Torah, we're talking about right, the first five books of the Bible. The last three verses of Psalm 19 are not only the psalmist's conclusion to the psalm, but is also a personal response and confession in which he expresses his need for God's forgiveness and acceptance. Very important. We're going to close on, on that. Those are important verses. So, as we transition then from the first six verses, which I'm not going to cover specifically at all because I'm charged with verse 7 and following. We come to then verse 7, as we proceed through the psalm, we begin to see the unity that is inherent in the flow from one section to another. We start to see some of the connections. The psalmist is proclaiming to us that the glorious creator of the universe who speaks to the world in his creation is also Israel's covenant Lord, who made Israel his people and gave Israel his Torah, his instruction, his law. In Scripture, the psalmists consistently praise God, the ruler of the cosmos, in connection with his just and righteous rule over people as well. God is both creator and king over all he has created. And so some of the clues that we have of this uh, this united theme here. The writer here, this, and it could be David, David very likely be David, um, he, he, he addresses God in the first six verses by the term El, verse 1 there. It's, it's the term that was known in the ancient Near East and in, in the uh, Semitic languages. It was not just known by the Hebrews, but by others around for, it's a title for the deity, the one who created the deity, El. Perhaps you know it as Eloah or Elohim. And so that's what he uses in the first six verses when he's talking about God's revelation to the world as creator. But when we get to verse 7, he changes that, and now he refers to God as Yahweh. And there you might see the word Lord, but notice it's in all caps. And that is a clue that, we're, that what we have here in the original is the tetragrammaton, and that is the four consonants, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. You put the vowels in there, you get Yahweh. And what Yahweh is, it's not a title. It's, God, it's God's personal covenantal name that He gives to His people, Israel, who He covenants with. He is their identity, and He has a relationship with them. And so now we go from El to Yahweh. And His point then is, same God. The God who created the whole universe 
is Israel's God and none other. It is God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants in, in Israel. And uh, so you can see the flow. The God who is the universe's creator is also Israel's creator. In fact, that language of creating a people is all through the Old Testament. Israel is his creation. And what we have here, I can't develop this, but what we have here is a, a hint or a glimpse that at that time in redemptive history, Israel was God's new creation people, a new humanity for a possible new creation at that time, who is to occupy a new Garden of Eden in the Promised Land. God is making all things new. Now, obviously, we see as we read through the Bible that didn't ultimately work or solve it, but God knew that, and that was a step along the way to the new creation that came later in a, a greater mediator, Jesus Christ. But still, the themes are here. That's here. Israel is God's creation. And then we see also that Torah is God's creation or God's uh, gracious gift to his covenant people and through them his gift to the world. Oftentimes we think of, of Torah, of God's law, as something stodgy and negative and all that. No, no, it's his gracious gift to his covenant people when others in the world didn't have it. The mind of God, the will of God given to them to help them. And through them, this gift would get out to the world. The psalmist understood that encoded in statutes and precepts and commands and history, Torah helps promote human flourishing and evokes from God's pupils their highest praise to him. Torah is Yahweh's covenant instruction, law. It is both catechetical teaching, systematic instruction teaching, as well as the terms of covenant life that leads a person into the way of righteousness. In other words, here in Torah is how you live in right covenant relationship with the Creator God. Here's the blueprint. This is, this is what he want, expects of you. This is how his human image bearers are to reflect him in the world. Now, I'm saying this. Please understand, I'm putting you into the world of the psalmist, right? Okay, we're in the old covenant here. Now, we're, we're, we're going to come to the new. Don't worry. We're going to sneak ahead here or there. But, but I want to put you there first, right? Understand what the psalmist is saying here and, and what he understands and then, so we could say Torah, I might say law, or I could say God's word. All right, I might interchange those throughout the rest of the sermon. Now, in terms of the structure of the, uh, verses 7 to 10 here, in verses 7 to 10, and this is going to be much of our focus, the psalmist constructs a section with literary precision and poetic appeal in which he exalts the virtues, benefits, and the desirability of Torah. Here we learn more in depth why the psalmist of Psalm 1 says that the man who delights in the law of God and meditates on it day and night is truly blessed. He writes six similar lines, each comprised of a sentence whose subject is a term that stands for Torah as a whole. 
the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. Now these terms for Torah are a diverse assortment that refers to what the psalmist viewed as various mediums of Yahweh's instruction in Torah, different angles by which we, we look at Torah as a whole. I mean, after all, this is poetry here. I mean, what, you, know, you wouldn't expect him to say in, in these verses, the law of the Lord, 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 the law of the Lord. It's poetry. He's going to flower his, his speech to us. He's going to bring different aspects or angles of the Torah to represent Torah. And that's what he does. Torah, or Yahweh's instruction, is present in particular precepts, laws, and commands. Now, the predicate part of each line or sentence names a specific quality of Torah that we are to revere and cherish. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. Then to each sentence, the psalmist attaches a prepositional phrase that adds a benefit or another quality, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, righteous altogether. Finally, the psalmist rounds out the section by comparing how Torah is to be desired over wealth and the sweetest food. Well, let's take a look at these six then, and we'll spend the bulk of our time here. <clears throat> the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Most likely, law here specifically refers to the Torah given to Israel by God at Mount Sinai. Again, this really is the backdrop here of this section. However, the principle here can by extension be applied to any scriptural revelation, all scripture, including this psalm. So we Christians can now say, by extension and application, God's word is perfect, reviving the soul. Yahweh's covenant law or instruction is, the author says, perfect. The Hebrew term here is regularly used for spotless, unblemished, sacrificial animals in Israel's sacrificial system. When applied to Torah, this term declares that God's word is flawless, without defect or blemish. It is impeccable, without error. It does not mistakenly misguide us due to fundamental shortcomings. It doesn't have shortcomings. Torah is sound and unspoiled, like, that, like a spotless lamb. It cannot be blamed for corrupting us in some way or lacking anything we require or need. It is perfect. And so it does the job. It's acceptable to God. The, and the beneficial effect that God's perfect word has on people is that it revives the soul, or you could say restores and revitalizes life. How? It brings a person back to God. It returns one back to a righteous covenant relationship with the God who, by grace, initiated that covenant relationship in the first place. This term here has the idea of a return or to, to restore. God's word puts back to right what we put wrong. It reestablishes our experience of covenant fellowship with God. It does this by exposing us to our sinful condition as we go the wrong way as well as reforms us as it turns us back on course and spiritually invigorates us toward a personal revival as God's Spirit works in us. 
we heard this, these kinds of themes all through the songs we sang this morning, did we not? Recall that Jesus' point in his rebuke of the Pharisees was that the law of God should revive the soul, right? But they have wrongly made it become a burden for people who, in truth, need reviving. How about you, friend, today, Christian? Ever find yourself in times in life you need reviving? You need the Word of God? With all the confusion and the mixed messages out there, you need the Word of God to, to anchor you, to have your compass pointing north again like it should to God Himself. Fellow believers, no matter what poor spiritual condition we might be experiencing in the moment, if that's the case with you, or no matter what event or situation that might have led to our wayward condition, no matter how badly we have jumped off the tracks on our spiritual journey, God's Word is His means of grace intended to turn us back from the path of folly that we are on, showing us how to return to God, how our relationship with God may be restored and renewed and refreshed. It represents the grace of new starts, of fresh starts. Now, I'm not talking that we're converted again and that we need to be converted over and over and over. I'm not saying that. Goodness, not, not in this church. But, uh, no, I understand. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that in the midst of covenant life, we can go wayward, can't we? The old ways of thinking, the old things that we valued that we shouldn't, the old idolatries come creeping back in from time to time, don't they? And the Word of God helps us jettison that and get back on course and help restore a sweet, sweet fellowship with our, with our God. Second, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The Hebrew term here is usually translated precepts or statutes and is used as a synonym for commandments. This is a general term for the responsibilities that God places on his people, what God appoints them to do and be as his covenant people, what he entrusts with, uh, them with, his directions, his orders, as if God is saying, if you are going to be my covenant people, this is what is expected of you. Such precepts are right. That is to say, they are upright, equitable, and just, because God himself is upright and just. He does no wrong and is characterized by integrity. What God appoints and directs to us to do and be in covenant life is not unfair, it's not immoral, but rather it's just and upright. It is good for us. He has our well-being at heart. And the beneficial effect of such precepts, if God's people accept this appointment and live by them, is that they produce joy. For joy is experienced through God's means of grace to us as we live out our lives. Our hearts rejoice. Yes, indeed, living out God's righteous plan for human beings as revealed in His covenant will bring deep, sustained joy. Have you been there, veteran Christian? You know what I'm talking about? I've been there. I wish I had more moments like this, but it's my fault if I don't. Deep, sustained joy that other things in the world do not provide. 
You know, friends, I am becoming increasingly and have been for years convinced that often our problem is that we do not consistently believe that in obeying what God directs us to do and be will bring such joy. Sometimes do we doubt that? Certainly unbelievers don't believe that. They look at the Bible as a, as a, a straitjacket. <laughs> don't, don't bind me with those rules. So what can we do? Well, we can return to the old idols, our old idols, looking for that joy or happiness, which never ultimately provide. It is as if we really do not believe in that moment that God's way in Scripture will fulfill us and bring us true joy and contentment, or that God truly knows us and knows what brings us joy. It's as if God does not have our well-being, our good at heart. Again, that is, that's the lie of the evil one. I think I skipped one here. Okay, we'll come back to it. That's the lie of the evil one to us. Remember what he said in the garden to Adam and Eve. God is, God's not trustworthy. You can't believe him. What he has for you isn't going to bring you joy. See, he knows. He knows that what you need is, 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 is to be God's yourselves. And he lies about God, caring about his people. The truth is that the effect of living in idolatry against God's covenant law his revealed will leads to sadness and emptiness and insecurity and ultimately ruin. Not true lasting joy that corresponds to who we really are, to how we have been created in God's image and what he has appointed us to be as his redeemed people. God's word does bring joy and we need to read it and live by it. And uh, the, the question then is, do we believe that? Do we believe that? As our life then will reflect that in how much we want to be in the Word. That'll be an, an, an evidence of that. Let me back up and do the one I missed. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. Verse 7, testimony is a general term referring to God's covenant declaration to Israel of his terms for life in the covenant and his laws and commandments. The word testimony, though, shapes his law as a more, now get this, direct and personal matter between God and his people. God's testimony to us is God speaking the truth to us based on his authority and the integrity of his character. His word is sure, as our author says, because God himself attests that is, it is so. He gives testimony to its truthfulness. And so because God declares his word as true, including his laws and commandments, it is then sure. And what did he mean by sure? It is reliable and trustworthy. You can trust it because you can trust God himself. God's word has integrity as truth because it is from God himself. And so we can trust and obey it with confidence and security. 
The beneficial effect of God's trustworthy testimony is that they make wise, or the simple one, wise. Often this refers to a young person, right, who has little life experience and training, is therefore without knowledge of how the world really is and how life works, and one who lacks the discipline to live it rightly. I've been there. (laughs) We've all been young. But to be simple does not necessarily mean a young person. Simple is simple-minded, lacking experience in making sound moral choices, dangerously naive, ready to believe anything and easily led astray, one who wanders into all kinds of mischief. Wisdom is the discernment to know the truth and apply it in all of life's circumstances and situations. It is demonstrated in the disciplined and productive life Of course, always giving credit and glory to God for such wisdom. God's Word turns a person around from folly to wisdom, enabling him or her to discern what is ultimately true and false, what is truly good or bad. To learn God's instructions and live by them is to come to know wisdom. Without Scripture, there can be no true godly wisdom. Do we humans really view God himself as trustworthy and reliable to give us need, needed wisdom for life? You see, God knows what is true and how to make us wise, and our regular time in the Word, or lack of it, can be an indicator of whether or not we practically believe that. How many times have I kind of gone through my day or my week as if I got it handled, God? I got it handled where I need His Word every day to give me the wisdom by which I live. And, and so what happens sometimes then when, when something, some crisis comes? Oh, then we go back to the Word, right? Then we get on our knees and pray. <laughs> now we need the wisdom of God. All right, but the one who is in the Word will, will it's, it's like a confession. Lord, I need you. I need your wisdom. I, 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 I've got to have this more than food, more than air. I need this for life with you, for spiritual life. And of course, as we said, the evil one tempted, will tempt us not to trust God, not to trust God, that he has our welfare at heart. Skip forward. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The psalmist uses the word commandment in the singular here in order to refer to all the commandments and provisions of the entire law of God. The commandments of the covenant law are pure and uncontaminated, empty of anything that would taint or corrupt God's law. They are without any imperfection. They are unsullied or unpolluted like, like, like pure gold. No harmful alloys in God's commandments, so to speak. And because God's commandments are pure, they enlighten the eyes. That is the beneficial effect of obeying God's pure commands. They enlighten our spiritual understanding and guide us in right choices, not darken our minds with deceitful, corrupt nonsense. If you live in a corrupt, evil world full of temptation to sin, such spiritual understanding is absolutely essential for life with God. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) Right? You know what I'm... You there? Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And later in that psalm, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And it is not simply that God's commandments enlighten our eyes, giving us understanding and knowledge, though that's true. 
But even more, living by these commandments enlightens the eyes when we actually put them in practice. Obedience also breeds a deep experiential understanding that confirms in us the cognitive understanding when we read His Word, the truth of God's commandments. He really does know what He is talking about. God really does know about life and reality, about His creation and His human creatures. You ever have any of the aha moments in your life where the circumstances that you have God teaches you in that. The Word of God is brought to your memory again, right there in that circumstance. And you're like, I get it now. Well, it's not like you didn't get it before. You got it in terms of reading the command. But now it's experientially realized. It's confirmed. It's cemented in there. And, and the Spirit uses that. And then all of a sudden you realize, He's right. He's Of course He's right. <laughs> He's right. And we are motivated then to live accordingly. Next, the fear of the Lord is, un is clean, enduring forever. We have a bit of surprise here in verse 9. Now, I remember when I was a young, handsome kid in elementary school. Uh, is there a problem there? I didn't, okay. Uh, our teachers made us take the IQ test for that age. Any of you remember that long ago? One of the skills tested was the ability to group things accurately to determine which item fits in a specific group or category and which do not. I was genius level at that, man. Now, now look at me. It's a great feat if I can match my socks in the morning. You would think that we would grade out as having a high intelligence by figuring out that the phrase, the fear of the Lord, stands out as not fitting in with the rest of the phrases. Law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules, fear? How does that fit in? What on earth is, 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 is this doing here? Well, for the sake of time, let me cut to the chase. Regularly in Scripture especially in the wisdom literature, the fear of the Lord is intimately connected to objective, special revelation from God, which can be taught and memorized and which is to be believed and followed. The fear of the Lord is linked to God's objective, special revelation time and again. And doing this expresses, oh, I'm sorry, this is simply what our author does here in verse 9. Our author uses a figurative literary device known as a metonymy by which he puts the effect of the law, reverent fear of God, to stand for the law itself. And that's what he's done, done here. Doing this expresses how the fear of the Lord or the fear of Yahweh has a common reference as these other terms and so serves as a synonym for the other terms, just coming at it from a, just a different angle, right? It's poetry. Recall what the wisdom writer instructed. If you accept my words, you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, Proverbs 2. So, when God's law is properly understood and received, it will promote a healthy reverence and holy fear of God in the believer. And it's good for us. That's good for us. God's word, which prompts this response in us, is clean, the psalmist says. Now, we're starting to see a pattern here. 
Have you picked up this pattern? Because this word clean, here we have another commonly used term applied to various things in the Levitical worship of the tabernacle and temple sanctuary, including offerings to God. This word is used in that all the time. Anything that was ceremonially not clean or considered ritually unclean was contaminated or corrupted through the defilement in the world outside the sanctuary and therefore was not permitted in the presence of God for holy uh, use in worship. It would be unholy. The law of God that produces holy fear and reverential awe of God in the believer is clean and therefore is acceptable in the presence of God. It is not polluted or corrupted in any way. Now, interestingly, again, have you noticed that this is the second or third word used by the psalmist in the last several phrases that were regularly used in Torah, referring to acceptable ceremonial practices and offerings in the tabernacle or the temple? We're starting to see a theme here, and that's intentional. Let's explore this just for a second. These two terms here, pure and clean, and the earlier one perfect, all having overlap in meaning, are used as synonyms. They both, or all of them, convey what is acceptable to God in His presence and in our worship of Him. What is our author's subtle yet profound point here? What God is after in His people, now get this, more than sacrifices and ceremonial worship, rituals is our proper response to His law, to His word, reverence for Him and a healthy fear, joy and delight, obedience and love. Embracing His word as part of embracing Him. You remember Samuel when he had told Saul, maybe, in the victory over the Malachites, is that God had told you you're just supposed to wipe all the animals out, right? They were devoted to destruction. Samuel comes after the victory, and there's Saul, and he, Samuel says to him, he hears the bleeding of the sheep and all the animals and the noise. Hey, what's that? And Saul says to him, uh, well, I, we, we kept some of the animals back for what? Do you remember what it was? For sacrifice, right. And what did Saul say when, when Samuel was saying, uh-uh-uh, not what you were told to do. Saul says, well, essentially he said this, I feared the people. As king, he's supposed to fear his covenant God. He feared the people, and thus he kept them for sacrifice. And Samuel says to him this, that to listen and obey God's word is better than sacrifice. That's what God wants. Sacrifices have their place, but what God is really after is, is that we, we obey His Word, that we reflect Him. You see, our author knew what Samuel knew, that obedience from a heart that loves God as well as fears Him and a heart that delights and rejoices in His Word is the offering that God desires and accepts from His people. You know who else understood this? Our Lord Jesus, who said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, like Jesus himself abided in the Father's love. You know who else understood this? The Apostle Paul. Remember these words from Romans 12? 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Sound like Psalm 19 there? And other passages in the Old Testament? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right out of the Old Testament there, what Paul is saying. The question to consider is this, do you and I understand this as reflected in our love for reading and obeying God's Word, our devotion to Him, okay? See, the beneficial effect of God's law in being clean and acceptable in God's presence is that it lasts or stands forever. God's Word will endure forever because God Himself is eternal and His Word is truth. As Jesus Himself said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Remember that, friends, when we are tempted to think that our culture or society is what will last. And then we have the fear of man and want to just fit in. It's not going to last. Nations come and go. So, question, what characterizes us? The fear of God or the fear of man? Okay, in answering that question, answer this one. How much time do we spend receiving messages from our current society and culture in comparison to the time we spend with God in the Word and prayer? What are we doing in our routines that are putting messages in our heads from the media, movies, music, whatever, compared to the time that we, we put the, God's Word in our heads? We've got to be honest with ourselves. As humans, we do what we want to do, don't we? Isn't that really human nature? We do. But the Word is precious, and we need it. Finally, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Thanks for bearing with me in this. The Hebrew term for rules here has a legal and judicial framework to its meaning and often understood as rulings, decisions, judgments. But here our author probably is referring to particular laws in Torah by which God helped Israel's judges to decide civil cases among the people concerning various rules of daily covenant life, the book of the covenant. And they became normative then to help the people. Our author says that these laws or rules are true. Something that is true is that which is faithful and reliable. In other words, something that is true faithfully corresponds to reality and is therefore reliable. If it is true, it is because it is real and right. And at this point, uh, that's the point of legal cases, right? To get to the truth. All of God's laws and commands help us do just that. Because God is true. And the psalmist's conclusion is, is that such rules and laws are being true because they're righteous altogether. Right? They're righteous. All of his rulings are righteous. They are consistent with the standards set in his covenant and keeping fellowship with him. We can trust God's true, dependable, and righteous word. Wow, that's, that's a mouthful. That's a lot. But the benefits... The benefits of God's law, what it does for us, how it helps us. And you know what he says? He says that in verse 10 and 11 there, Moreover, to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping with them is their great reward. 
the value of God's Word, it's, it's greater than, than, than a couple of examples that he gives that were so valued in the ancient world. Well, gold, even today. Gold is the standard, right? The standard for wealth and power and security. But as God said to his prophet Ezekiel, that, hey, don't you, don't you, take, don't you take comfort in your, own, in your own wealth or your own gold because that's not going to help you come the judgment day, the day of the Lord's wrath. So the gold is, can't make us secure in the big picture of life itself. Gold can't do it. Even much gold, it says here, even much fine gold, the purest of gold, and lots of it. Much more valuable than that is God's Word. And then the honeycomb, the honey, that was a luxury back then. That was a delicacy. Most of the honey they used were from the, the palm dates. That's, that was the common honey for the common folk. So honey that came from the bee, from the hive, that, well, that's a luxury. And it's, it's the sweetness of the honey, right? A pleasurable experience. That's the Word of God. It's more of a pleasurable thing to you than, than, than tasting honey as a sweetener, because they didn't have much sugar cane there. And, and, and then look, he says, moreover by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. It's the penetrating two-edged sword of God's Word, right? On the one hand, it'll give us things, tell us things that are encouraging, that points us to the truth, that gives us heart, that, that to take heart, and it declares the blessings of God for obedience, for us to, to follow Him. And yet, at the other side, it gives us warnings, consequences for if we don't, like a parent. Many of you kids here, you get warnings, consequences if you don't obey. Okay, your parents are helping you. They're putting parameters on you, limits to help you because they know what's best for you. And so the consequences God uses to warn us, that we need that. We need both. And God uses that. It helps us. Notice then in the last <clears throat> three verses here, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Stop there for a sec. It's as if the, the psalmist, and especially if it's David, it is if the psalmist realizes that he's got a problem. In light of God's great revelation in creation, in light of God's great revelation in Torah and the law, and his desire to keep it, so that in keeping the law, he can offer that up to God. He realizes he's got a problem. I mean, look, look, look what he wants to do. Last verse. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, right? What comes out from the heart usually comes out the mouth. Be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer, my refuge. He, you see, there, there's that theme again. I want you to accept me, God. I want you to accept me and the basis that I'm, 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 living, I'm living your word like you want. Here's my offering of myself, living out your word, being the human you created me to be. That's what I want. Got a problem. The psalmist knows, even David knows, I can't do this. 
looking at his whole life, he looked back at the sins that he had. Goodness, just looking in the last week, he'll remember the sins that he had. The past 25 hours of writing this, he knows the, the sins and where he's transgressed the covenant. He knows, I can't do this, but I want to. I want to offer up myself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. That's the offering you, that pleases you. Of course, God provided the provision of the sacrifices in the Old Covenant. He provides those because we need them, because we're sinners. But that doesn't mean that that's what God is after in the end. That's not what God is getting at in His whole plan of redemption. And the psalmist realizes this. He knows he can't offer himself up to God. I mean, that's why he calls him my Redeemer, my rock and my Redeemer. I need your help. I need your forgiveness, he says there. Because it's not only the sins I know about, it's the sins, my unwitting sins, that I don't even know about, as Leviticus points out, that I don't even know about. And it's not because these sins are so small. It's because these sins become so characteristic. It's like our default mode, and we don't even realize them. That, that's his, his point. I need forgiveness. I need your forgiveness, and thank God for the sacrificial system. Absolutely. But that was, that was, that was provisional. The blood of bulls and goats was provisional to, to deal with human sin and have a judicial basis that God, being holy, can deal with, with, with sin. Something has to die. <laughs> for, for uh, humans to be bought back from slavery to sin, right? And so he knows that. And, and, and guard me. It's, it's not, I need your forgiveness and I need your protection. Guard me from the presumptuous sins. What does he mean by that? Well, the sins where I, I fail to realize who I am. I'm human. The sins that I, that, I, that, I, that I do when I fail to embrace my creatureliness and I grasp at deity. And I want to play God. Or think, I don't need you. I can live this life on my own. Protect me from that. Guard me from that. Don't let me go there. That's what he's saying. Don't let me go there. I want to be innocent in your sight. I want to be blameless. I want to be accepted. I need you, God. Now, the interesting thing here is this. If David wrote this, who was supposed to be by the way, thanks for your patience. We're coming to Christ now. Who was supposed to be the one who lived out Torah for the rest of the covenant people to, to see as an example? Who was supposed to be the one who was the faithful covenant keeper, the faithful Torah keeper for the people? The king. The king. Psalm 1 says it as much. Blessed is the man. I know by application you can say it applies to men and women together. Yeah, I agree. But I think originally, blessed is the man. Well, the first application is to the king who delights in the law of God and meditates on it and does it. Have you noticed this pattern in the Psalter? A deliberate ordering of the Psalms. Did you know this? That right next to the Torah Psalms, you have kingship Psalms, royal Psalms. Did you know that? They're placed right next to each other. Psalm 1, Torah Psalm. Psalm 2, Royal Psalm, Kingship Psalm. Psalm 19, Torah Psalm in the second half. Psalm 18, Royal Psalm. Psalm 119, Torah Psalm. All around it, Royal Psalms. That's not just coincidence. 
It's the king. The king who's supposed to live out the Torah and be that example and show the people the way to go so that they can offer themselves up as, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. And it's, it's, it's obvious in the Psalter that you could tell that they knew the kings they had in their history. Right? Who were the best? David? Josiah? Maybe? Asa? Hezekiah? The best of the lot. And even they failed to be the, the, the consistent, perfect Torah keeper, faithful covenant keeper, even though there was a lot of good there. And the Psalter then has, they know this. The psalmists know this. And so in the Royal Psalms, there's this hint of looking forward. They look forward. They realize we don't have this king yet. We need this king, this Mashiach, this anointed one, this holy one. And hundreds of years later, enter onto the stage of world history, Jesus of Nazareth, in the line of David, the king. The king, the God-man who comes, and as he comes, he perfectly fills, fulfills Torah. He lives out Torah. He is the perfect covenant keeper. He does it. And not only that, he is the embodiment of Israel's hopes and dreams and destiny and believers that will come after. He in himself fulfills the law and thus replaces it in that sense. He fulfills it in himself. He is Torah incarnate. This is what it looks like to live out the covenant faithfully and be right with God. Look at Jesus. Show me Christ. Show us Christ. That was terrible, but you got the point. Look at Christ. He does it. And that's why we as Christians now, we read about the Torah and God's Word. We want to follow the will of God, but it has a Christ shape to it now. Torah has a Christ shape to it. He is now the focus. He takes the law and he ratchets it up even higher to the level of the heart. Ever read the Sermon on the Mount? There it is. He then helps us. How? Let me ask you a question. Can you relate to the psalmist? Do you ever read in the New Testament there and what God expects through the Sermon on the Mount? And all of a sudden, it dawns on you. I can't do this. You look at your life and you see the sin of your life and you're like, man, I haven't done this. Look at your past week and you know, if you're honest before God, look at the past 24 hours. I can't do this, at least not perfectly. Ah, but there's good news. And here's the good news. The king has come and done it for you. He has lived Torah for you on your behalf, your substitute Torah keeper, your substitute faithful covenant keeper. He did it. But it gets even better. It gets even better. He didn't do it just as an example for us to follow, a good moral example. I'm sorry, liberal theologians, you're wrong. He's not just a moral example for us, though. He's certainly that. 
It's more than that. He lived the perfect life, and in doing so, keeping Torah perfectly, it qualified him to, to, to be able to be the one who takes care of our sin. His being the faithful covenant keeper qualifies him to be our sacrificial lamb. And it, because the blood of bulls and goats wouldn't do it, human, a human has to die for sin, but it has to be a spotless, here we go, a clean, pure, perfect human that has to die for sin on our behalf. He becomes then our substitute sin bearer, uh, as g- getting us, giving us an atoning sacrifice by which God can have a judicial basis to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And living out Torah is what qualified him to do it. Do you remember Moses in the Old Covenant after the, uh, the problem with the golden calf? Remember God was furious with Israel? What did he want to do? What did God want to do? Or yes, he said he did. What was he going to do? He's going to wipe him out and start over with Moses. What did Moses do at that moment? It was his high moment. This was Moses' high spiritual point. What did he do? What was that? Take me, Lord. That's right. Lord, no, don't, don't. What about your reputation in the world? What about, what about how people think of you? What about your, your promises to Abram? No, Lord, no, that's if God needed to, to know about that. He knew about that. Take me. Kill me. Spare them. God says, no. Each man will pay for his sin. And it's as if it's saying there, when you put that in the whole Bible storyline, right idea, Moses. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Wrong guy. Right idea, wrong guy. You're not qualified, Moses. You're not a perfect Torah keeper. You're a murderer, Moses. You murdered that Egyptian. You're not perfect, but you're on the right track. And when later on comes Jesus of Nazareth, the one who does do that, who lives Torah perfectly, and he's the right guy. And thus, his living Torah out as king, him doing that, qualifies him to be our sacrifice. And now we have hope. And so now, friends, when we go to the Word of God, we do so not out of just, just mere duty. Oh, I should have been in the Word again today. No, again, it's God's gift to us with God's greatest revelation in Jesus Christ. It's His gift to us, the Word of God that has the Christ shape. And we, what we need is to read day after day the Gospel over and over and over. Even if we read in the Old Testament, we see where it's pointing the gospel over and over again. That, and then out of hearts of thanksgiving, out of love for God, for what He's done for us in our King, we want to read the Word. When we're struggling, we want to be turned back. And it enables us then, with the sending of a Spirit, we now have the chance one day to have our elder brother, our King, our Savior, take us and present us to God and say, there, here's my offering, my people. They're clean. They're pure as Jesus is coming. Ah, friends, I want to read about that.
over and over and over again. I want to read. I need that. Hey, we have a new year here, right? God gives us fresh starts. For some of you who've been struggling with this, let's start again. Let's start again. And if throughout the year you, you miss some and you get, you get, you know, the old patterns, you can start again and we'll help each other. And for those here who are good and faithful in the Word of God, you've heard afresh this morning why you're doing it. The significance of why you're in the Word every day. Thank you for that. Thank you for what you're doing. Let's all help each other and help the rest as we start into a new year. God is so gracious in giving us His Word. Let me finish again. Thank you for your patience with me. I'm going to fi finish with one stanza of giving the last word to Isaac Watts in the hymn, The Heavens Declare Thy Glory. The heavens declare thy glory, Lord, in every star thy wisdom shines. But when our eyes behold thy word, we read thy name in fairer lines. The rolling sun, the changing light, the nights and days thy power confess, but the blessed volume thou hast writ reveals thy justice and thy